All right. Well, it's a joy to be with you. The hype feels a little too strong. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be okay, I think. Uh, no, I'm, I'm really uh, honored to be up here. Honestly, with RUF, um, with the assessment, you pass assessment, and they make a suggestion about where they want to place you. But you can say no to that suggestion. And when they uh, recommended Northwestern, we just didn't know anything about Northwestern or this area. And they said, just start making phone calls, and I think you'll see why we love this place. And the more we kind of reached out and heard about, especially, particularly Grace, uh, the more we were like, this is where we want to be. So we have felt so blessed and prayed for and just like cheered on in our work that um, it's awesome. We're really, really gracious. It means quite a lot to us. I also have to say, before my students point it out, because they're super nice, uh, that uh, I'm not a campus minister yet until I get ordained. I'm technically a campus associate. So if you look in the bulletin, it says campus minister. And this is something, if I don't say up front, they will walk around and point out to you over and over. Whenever I make a mistake, they go, such a campus associate. Uh, so <laughs> that's it. All right. Um, yeah, my hope is that today, uh, if so... I was teaching at Abide this past weekend. If you've been in RUF, there's actually going to be a culminating effect on a lot of the stuff I've done here. Uh, but I want to say a few things about this. So we're looking about what Christ says about anxiety. Anxiety is a really personal subject for a lot of people. And I imagine there are some of you in the room who kind of feel like you haven't preached about anxiety unless you've said this or that particular thing. Um, I've got about 25 minutes. So my goal is not to write the exhaustive book on the scriptures and what they have to say about anxiety, it is to get at what Christ has for us here about it, okay? And so uh, I think there are different types of anxiety. I think Christ is addressing a particular kind, but I just wanted to say that up front. Uh, yeah, so let's, let's do this. Let's jump in. Let me pray for us that God would bless us as we get into this, and let's do it. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that your word is good and trustworthy, that it's a gift to us. We thank you for the honor of being able to hear it. Soften our hearts. Help us to submit ourselves to what you have for us. Help us to know that it is good. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of my heroes in the faith is Russell Moore. He, uh, some of you may know who he is. He's head editor at Christianity Today. He wrote a really lovely book called Adopted for Life, in which he talks about how his family came together. And uh, he and his wife adopted two children from an orphanage that was not in the States. And uh, it was a long, arduous process, detailed in the book. It's worth reading. But ultimately, when they ended up at the orphanage um, meeting these two young boys who would soon enter into their family, they found them in a very horrible state, uh, both health-wise and uh, just in terms of cleanliness and all of that. Uh, and when they brought them back, you know, they went through, the, they, they welcomed them into their family, and they did all these things, and suddenly these two young boys were in a place where the pantry was, was full, and what they started to realize after a few weeks is Russell Moore and his wife would find stashes of food around the house. And they realized it was because the two young boys didn't really trust what they had stepped into just yet. That they did not think it would last. And so they would take this good stuff and hide it away, just knowing maybe this will all fall apart. So I think actually that's a good example of how we sometimes live as Christians. We're often anxious, I think, because we don't embrace the gift of what it means to live in the kingdom of God with a full pantry. 
While Christ offers another route away from all the misery of the world's attempt at control, we consistently return to kind of old, dead-end habits that lead us further into worry and anxiety. But today, I want us to see that following Christ draws us out of insecurity and independent control and into the security of dependent faith. Let me say that one more time. I think Christ draws us out of the insecurity of independent control and into the security of dependent faith. So to look at this passage, to look how I think Jesus defines it, we're going to look at three points. One, the dead end of control. Two, the invitation to a new way. And three, the heart of the matter. Now, if you have your Bibles out, I really kind of halfway through the week realized I should have, should have asked the, uh, a larger chunk to be read. Because we see this famous passage about do not be anxious. But there's actually this parable that comes right before that's very helpful in dealing with this. So if you have your Bibles, if not, just listen. Uh, Luke 12, 13. So Jesus is in the process of teaching. And we have this right before his passage on do not be anxious. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher... Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to him, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul? I love that part. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now let's start with this. If that parable is jarring or provocative, that is the entire point, uh, right? Sometimes we hit these parables that Jesus says that are meant to make us uncomfortable. We go, why do I feel so uncomfortable? Yes, good work. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Uh, and, but I think we should actually be more receptive to this parable than anyone in history. And why I say that is because we know something that the original audience maybe didn't know deep down, which is we know that anxiety is not a circumstantial question, it's a spiritual question. What do I mean? If you could go back in time and tell this crowd and say, hey, one day there will be this thing called air conditioning, and you will literally be able to decide the exact temperature of every room you're in. You will walk in, it'll be winter, and you'll say, I want it to be warm, and poof, it'll be warm. You will be able to just, just declare that my day is not over and light should stay on, and you'll flick a switch and you will have light. You, many of your, your descendants will never hunger. Uh, your kids will grow up with access to medicine that you could never fathom. And at just any moment, you could decide, I want to listen to the best orchestra, the best musicians playing the best music for me at my request at any time, and you, you'll be able to have it. And if you told that original audience all that, they go, dude, we must never be, that's awesome. We must be the happiest people alive. We must never be anxious. But we know the truth. We know that anxiety is not a circumstantial question, but it's a spiritual question. Uh, and so this man in the story is a fool because he believes he can buy rest and peace. After a life of toil and anxiety, he thinks he can just flip a switch and drop it all 
but it's all an illusion. The man's dialogue itself reveals his spiritual state. He's the center of everything. I'm sure some of you caught it. Just look how many eyes there are in there. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain. And then that great soul, soul. He's even talking to his soul in this way. Okay, when he thinks about his life and what he has to do, the only reference is himself. There is no reference to God. There's no reference to his neighbor. What's the summary of the law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. No reference to either of those things, just to himself. The sun rises and sets with himself. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once made this argument. I love it. He argued that most of us have this direct relationship with all the things in our lives. So imagine you're like, uh, sorry, you can take the teacher out of the classroom, but uh, imagine, I need a whiteboard. Imagine you are at the center of this circle, okay? And you have these direct lines to all these different things in your life, to your neighbors, to money, to work, to all these things. Uh, and there are all these direct lines, and they, they weigh very heavily on you. They where you find your validation, your worth. In a lot of ways, every one of those lines holds you ransom. If, if you wake up that day and something goes wrong on one of those direct lines, it could totally ruin you and your day. But this is what this parable says, it, clearly. It says, one day you'll die. One day I will too. And all of these lines will fade and will stand before God as a true individual. Our tribe, our family, our work, none of that comes with us. The Christian life is a call to renounce those lines before that moment and follow Jesus. All this talk about dying to self and carrying your cross, it's about this. You can think through the story of the Bible, how frequently God is asking people to kind of let go of those direct lines. Abraham, leave your, your, leave your home. Joshua, I need you to approach Jericho in the strength of me and not this army. Rich young ruler, I need you to give it. It's like, if you start looking at all the characters in the Bible, they are always asked to let go of that direct line and trust in God. There's this program on PBS called uh, Closer to Truth. Robert Lawrence Kuhn does this. I'm indebted to Justin Ariel Bailey for showing this clip. Uh, Robert Soren Kuhn kind of picks a topic and he will interview people about this subject. And this subject on this one was the, the God question. He's like, I want to interview all the best people about whether I should believe in God or not. And he does not. And it's it, actually a lot of the conversations are super fascinating. One of them he has with Sarah Coakley, a professor of divinity at Cambridge. And they're going back and forth and he keeps talking about how he's afraid that if he believes, he wants to believe in God, but if he does it'll be some level of being duped, that like he will have been tricked, because he's like, I want it so bad, what if this is just uh, giving me what I want? And she says this to him, and it's worth reading in full. She says, the big existential question is where are true joys to be found? As a priest and a believer, I find that it is in silent waiting on God that ultimate transcendent reality impinges on me, and every time I do that, I think of it as a kind of rehearsal for the moment when I finally have to give over control, which will be the moment when I die. And as, I, as a priest, I think that rehearsing for death is actually one of the most important things we do as humans, because once we're no longer afraid of death, then we are no longer afraid of life. And you strike me as a person who is very interested in controlling what you believe because you are afraid of no longer being in charge the captain of your own soul. But when you come to think of it, there's going to come a day when you are lying in bed about to die and the possibility 
will no longer be a fantasy that you can maintain. What Christ is reminding us in this parable is we are not in control. Everything about the world tells us this. We can hold up the illusions on that day when your kids aren't sick and you feel pretty good and, you know, you're watching uh, the Cubs not make the playoffs. You can kind of convince yourself that things are okay. But at some point, all those direct lines let us down. They all fade. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What makes the rich fool a fool? He has misunderstood where true security lies and he's misunderstood where true joy lies. Christ offers something better. Looking at the disciples, at one point he actually says, and my students will recognize this from RUF, at one point he actually says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and the age to come. And you know what? Basically, almost none of the disciples make it to retirement age. They live terribly hard lives. And he says, in this life, you will have joy and in the one to come. Here's an implicit challenge I want to leave you with before leaving this point. And it's the same challenge that I gave to the grace, this, uh, the youth at Grace and of Overabide. When we pray, are we praying for God to help us increase our control? Are our prayers basically the rich fool's prayers? Did that man pray for God to help him build larger storehouses? To increase his security? Father, give me more control over my life. Give me more self-created security. Can I tell you something? The most merciful thing Christ can do is not answer that prayer. Why? Because we've seen it. That way lies death. And Christ says, whoever loves his life will lose it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The rich fool could not add one moment to his span of life when God said his moment had come. The same will be true of us. Okay, so that is the dead end of control. I hope I've at least convinced you a little bit that it's a dead end. The second thing I want to see is the invitation to a new way. And now we're going to get into what Christ actually says here about anxiety. Uh, a few quick reactions to Christ's words. One, some of you amazing, beautiful people are not actually very anxious. And when you hear Jesus say, do not be anxious, you go, oh, yeah, right. Okay, I'll, I'll quit doing that. That's really cool. Good on you. Um, I would love to know what that's like. Maybe take me out to eat and talk to me about it. Uh, at the same time, for some of you, anxiety is a constant presence. It hems you in, in front of you and behind you. It's your constant companion every day. Your family has to deal with it. Your friends deal with it. And for you, when Christ says, do not be anxious, there's a part of you maybe that goes, thinks that's a little offensive. Like, oh, that's right, thanks. I've just been waiting for somebody to tell me to quit being anxious, and now I'll do it. Super helpful. And you can hear that and say, he totally underestimates my experience and my struggle. But I want to say a brief reminder. The Son of God did not take on flesh and enter the suffering of the world and enduring all the difficulties and go to the cross just so he could kind of older brother rebuke you. Okay? This is a loving friend and Lord putting his hand on his disciples' shoulders and saying, don't be anxious. This is comfort. This is an invitation. This is like Galadriel telling Frodo, do not let your heart be troubled. You know, this is good stuff. If you hear this as another place where somebody is calling you 
to get beat up by standards and expectations, I think you're mishearing Christ. He has come for your benefit. The second thing you may want to critique is you may go, well, this is easy for you to say, Jesus, but most of your disciples die, right? So what are you talking about? Anxiety seems like the perfect response. They should be anxious. Eleven of them are martyred. But catch that question. We're starting to sound like the rich fool again. Translated, that's kind of saying, why don't you agree with my version of getting security and control? Why don't you agree with me? I know what it looks like to have security and control. Why don't you give me what I want? But Christ is calling us away from the rich fool's version. It's death. We already saw that. He's calling us to something radically new and different. The cross isn't just an end. It's a way. Now, there's a shift worth noting. Whereas in the parable it said, Christ is addressing the crowd. This starts with, and he said to his disciples. He is speaking to those who have committed to following him and his task. The strain of his task, even. There are people who are actively, these are people who are actively turning from the rich man's mission to the mission of Christ, but they're feeling the difficulty of it. And I wonder how often he heard his disciples kind of grumbling about, I mean, you know the story of Jesus, right? The fox has a place to lay his head, but Christ doesn't. He's homeless. He wanders around. And the disciples are constantly bothering him about where they're going to get food from. And, you know. So Christ observing their constant hum of anxiety. And you can almost see him out in nature going, guys, guys, look at the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They don't have a storehouse or a barn. They don't load stuff up. They're not thinking about saving up money generationally. And yet God feeds them. And consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Christ's reasoning is simple, and we heard it in the children's sermon. It was perfect. God sovereignly takes care of the world around us. Will he not also take care of his disciples as he calls them into following him? Alongside this is this big idea, he says. And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Do you hear what that's saying? Your anxiety is not even useful. It doesn't even do anything for you. It's not even good at accomplishing the mission you want it to accomplish. So why use it? This is a charge for people on mission, and it's worth hearing this. God, Christ is not saying, don't be anxious while you build up your personal port, uh, retirement portfolio. He's saying, don't be anxious as you pursue the kingdom of God. That's a big difference. Jesus does not come to comfort the rich fool while he's heading towards his death. That would be deeply unloving. He comes to disrupt the rich fool while he's heading towards his death. But he does come to comfort his disciples while they seek the costly act of following him. He essentially says that himself. Look at verses 29 through 31. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, like the rich fool... And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, new mission. And these things will be added to you. The disciples and we are going to need this comfort if we follow after Christ. If there's one scary thing about the scriptures, it's this. No Christian ever gets to move from a position of independent control, but only dependent faith. I need to think about if that's an absolute, but I'm pretty sure it is. Let's, like, go through the story, right? 
Abraham's promised to start an entire nation even though they can't have children. Joseph will save his family by being sold into slavery. Moses and the Israelites flee the Egyptians right to a river that has to be split in half. Joshua invades Jericho by wandering around the walls, which probably looked hilarious. David goes out to fight Goliath with a slingshot and no armor. Gideon goes against an army with half the men he wants to. Mary and Joseph have to raise the Son of God while the government's trying to kill them. The Son of God takes on the powers of death and evil as a carpenter. The entire crux of our salvation starts with our Savior being killed on a Roman cross. Are you seeing what I'm pointing out here? Christ calls us not into moving from positions of strength. He calls us into moving from position of dependent faith on him. That can be terrifying. And let me tell you something else. If you're trying to do Christianity from a position of independent control, you will always be frustrated, and I think it's God who's frustrating you. And I think it's a merciful thing that he does it. This goes all against our put money into college savings impulses. We want to be Frank Sinatra. I did it my way, or my daughter Posey. But I think God is more of a U2 fan. Love is a temple. Love the higher law. You ask me to enter, and then you make me crawl. We need, I I like U2 a lot. They're great. All right. Uh, (laughs) We need the do not be anxious because we're called into a place that will not let us rest on those direct lines. Money or family or tribe won't deliver us. Only dependent faith on Christ. All right, so let's look at the last thing. So we've seen the end of control is death. We've seen an invitation to a new way. And I want to end with this, the heart of the matter. The final part of our passage is so lovely Just listen to the first line. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. One more nature illustration. Christ is the good shepherd, ushering us towards the kingdom of God where we will have the security that we so deeply want. Unlike the futility and uncertainty of the rich ruler, the disciples of Christ will get what they they seek in this life and the one to come. And he says, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. In that final line, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love that it ends this way. Uh, I grew up, my mom is a violinist, and we had, she taught a lot of private violin lessons. And I got to the point where every time I came home, I could just listen and tell you what Suzuki book they were in and whether they had practiced that week and, you know. Uh, it's funny how when you take lessons, you feel like you're fooling the teacher all the time, you know? And like the 10-year-old kid is like, they didn't practice. Uh, anyway, I, I played cello for many years, and I really did not enjoy the cello. I transferred over to the guitar, a lot more fun. I played the cello for eight years, though, and just did not like it. And did it for kind of all the reasons on top of the cello, like, well, maybe I could get into Allstate Orchestra, or maybe I'd get a scholarship. But there were like things that weren't inherent to the instrument. You know what's interesting? When you drop off like a really hard piece of music to a student who is, let's say two students, to one who's just doing it because they want the scholarship or their parents want it, and to another who loves music, and you put that hard music on the stand in front of them. If you put the music on the hard stand in front of the high-performing person who doesn't love the instrument, they start to play, the runs are really hard, and they get super frustrated. I'll never be good at this, and they start catastrophizing. I'm awful and worthless, and it's super hard, and they're anxious. What does a really great musician do when they get a hard piece of music and they hit that first run and they miss it? They laugh, right? Like, oh, this is good, right? They get excited by the challenge of it. 
What's the difference between those two students? It's affection. It's affection. A student who plays and loves to play loves the instrument. And it's a natural consequence. They love doing it. They have affection for it. The other student has no affection for the instrument, and it's just anxiety all the way down, right? At the beginning, I mentioned that we have these direct lines that have to drop. Well, there's this second step that I want to end with, and this is a beautiful one. It's not just as Christians that we burn down all those connections, because something new actually happens. Christ mediates our relationship with all of those things. So imagine you're in the center, you have these direct lines, but now there is Christ in between you and that thing. You don't just look at your money, you look at your money through the lens of a savior who is bringing you into a secured kingdom. You don't just look at your family, but you look at your family through the lens of a savior who came for every one of your members of your family and loves you and promises that the promise is for you and your children and your children's children. You don't just look at difficulty through the lens like your job and look at it through that, you look at it through the lens of Christ, who's given you that job to steward and to glorify his name and grow in him. I actually think this is at least partially what it means to grow in Christ. Our direct relationships will fade and be replaced by these mediated ones, and it will change our hearts and our affections. We'll stop loving people because we want to be a good fill-in-the-blank. We'll start loving them because we love them. Where his treasure is, there his heart will be. Affection follows faith. Well, I gotta end here. The biggest reason not to be anxious is actually something Jesus doesn't say, but it's right there the whole time. Do you know what Christ's treasure is? Do you know where his heart is? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The joy is you, the joy is me. The treasure that Christ has, where his heart is set on, is you. And when that person who came in the flesh and took sin on the cross and was resurrected and promises that one day we'll all be sitting together eating a feast in the kingdom of heaven when he leans out and says, do not be anxious about your life, but seek his kingdom also and these things will be added to you, we say amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are good, you are good, you are good. I thank you that your word to us is always an invitation. If you didn't love us, you would not speak. But the word became flesh and dwelt among us that we could know you more fully. Father, forgive us when we act like the rich fool. Forgive us for all our prayers that you would help us become more in control. Help us to let go. Help us to trust you maybe for the first time. We love you, Father. Show us the way. We know you are the way, the truth, and the life. We eagerly desire that life. And in Jesus' name, amen.